0: everyone, welcome to Stutter Talk, episode 688. 6- I- I'm Chaya Goldstein, speech language pathologist and person who stutters, here with Chris Constantino, professor and researcher at Florida State U- U- University, and also uh, uh, another co-host of Stutter Talk, to discuss the newly released *Stammering: Pride, and Prejudice book. Chris, it's really exciting to be talking with you today, because I know you co-host the show other times, uh, happy National Stuttering Awareness Week and welcome!
1: Thank you, Haya. Hey, it's good to be here also. I'm looking forward to talking with you.
0: So we're here to talk about your book, Stammering Pride and Prejudice. Uh, um, I know that there are um, two other e- uh, editors that really deserve um to be uh, acknowledged at this point Sam Simpson and Patrick Campbell and we will be able to get to hear from them but for today I wanted to hear your perspective about it so I read the book I love it and I like that it challenges the narrative of how stuttering has been looked at and more or less, we've been looking at stuttering from the narrative and of the medical model of disability. And this book really takes a deep dive and it explores stuttering from the social model of disability. So, while I was reading it, um, I found it to be moving, funny, maddening, thought-provoking. It was a tearjerker. Uh, it really evoked a lot of emotions. So, let's dig in. Um, can you give me some background? Why? Why did you decide to write it?
1: Well, first off, thank you for all those. Kudos. Um, it's nice to hear that you related to the book and got something out of it. Um, whenever you write something, it's almost like it goes off into a black hole and you sort of hope that people enjoy it. But, um, other than the, every once in a while people writing you, you don't, you you really don't know how it's perceived overall. So I do appreciate you saying that. Um, Regarding sort of the the purpose or the reasoning behind the book, um, I think Sam Patrick and I were sort of noticing that um, different voices in stuttering were starting to make use of um, different ways of talking about their experiences and different ways of describing um, how stuttering felt to them and also what was disabling about the experience of stuttering. And a lot of these voices were coming from people with um, different perspectives on stuttering that, that might not be from, say, speech-language pathology uh, or from a more clinical perspective. Um, and we wanted to sort of start a conversation about the if 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 we were to not look at stuttering as a medical problem, um, where would we locate the difficulties? And what would the consequences of where we locate those dis- difficulties be? And I th- I, th- I think why we used the social model disability in this book isn't that the social model dis- disability is necessarily the right way of looking at stuttering or the only way, but it's a useful way of looking at stuttering in order to foster thinking and conversation. And basically the, what the social model disability tries to do is view all human um, functioning as sort sort of a neutral construct. So you get rid of the idea of pathology and you just view human bodies as existing on a continuum. And you try to analyze how does the person's environment contribute to or help them navigate their uh, life, regardless of uh, how their body is. And so, for a long time, the social model of disability was used with physical disabilities. So, something like um, not being able to walk. Um, it's pretty, it's sort of a pretty easy thought experiment to look at a person who's unable to use their legs for walking and understand that if they had the appropriate accommodations like a wheelchair and access ramps and brakes in the side walk that they're significantly less disabled than if they didn't have access to those things. Um, And so we wanted to begin to apply this thinking to stuttering. Um, Once again, not because not because it 's the only issue with stuttering, but because looking at things using different models allows us to ask different questions and come to different answers, and we thought it was a useful uh, tool, given what a lot of people in stuttering were talking about
0: I'm curious as you we were talking chris, you're saying that you know this is one way to look at stuttering, and we're taking out the right or wrong or best we're just saying this is another way to look at it when you were researching the this model like did you find anything related to stuttering in the social model of disability prior to this compilation
1: um there 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 are other authors who touch on it um more of just they might be talking about an example of a disability that's not f- physical um but very few authors really took it up as the subject of their work. Um I can name a few like Joshua Saint Pierre and uh Christopher Eagle who have exp- are actually both people who stutter and have explicitly used stuttering as the uh lens through which to do their work. Um but stuttering was not very prominent Within the disability studies, studies literature. In the fact, the, one of the, um, prefaces to our book, Stammering Pride and Prejudice, is written by Michael Oliver, who is, um, he is since died, but he was one of the originators of the social model of disability. And when we approached him to write the uh, preface, he was surprised, and I think in a happy way, because when he had first thought about this, he was thinking primarily in terms of physical disability. And, um, I think he was pleasantly surprised that his ideas had become useful, even to people like us, people who, um, are able to navigate their surroundings, their, um, what I mean by navigate is locomote, right? To get around just fine, but uh, have trouble communicating. And I think um, for a lot of people that wasn't in the initial conception of the social model.
0: Got it. Um, Chris, so something that I heard you say before was that you were like listening to people's stories and maybe more so the language that they were using. And it didn't it didn't fit into the current narrative, which is more or less the medical model. Um, Would you say this was like a, a natural evolution over time? You noticed that people were speaking and sharing and their stories were saying something new or saying something that didn't yet have a name or a title or a space.
1: Yeah. I, I think you were hearing more people talk about the effects of, um, social stigma. Um, Michael Boyle's work especially has taken up the idea of stigma. Um, you were hearing people who stutter who are part of the LGBTQ community relating their experiences with stuttering to their experiences of being in the closet. You were hearing people who stutter who are of different racial Minorities um, come comparing those two experiences and, and, and discussing the intersectionality of them. Um, there was there was all this uh, treatment of stuttering from a social and humanities perspective that positioned it not as a medical issue, but as a almost as a civil rights issue as a. Um, it, as a minority identity that wasn't getting its, its due. Um, and there was also a lot of, um, I think the perspective I was coming from is I had been s- studying the disability studies literature and realizing that people who stutter hadn't yet really do- Developed these ideas, they 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 hadn't done done the work of trying to conceptualize what stuttering might be if it's not a medical condition, um, and so the time seemed right to begin exploring those ideas.
0: That's fascinating. So, Chris, what brought you to start studying uh, disability studies? Um.
1: I had taken a bunch of qualitative research classes uh, during my PhD program, and um, all my professors were um, pretty radical feminists and queer theorists and uh, critical race and theorists and we were doing all these readings in those fields and it seemed like everything I was reading very much related to stuttering. Uh, whether you were talking about race uh, gender or sexuality um, the prejudices that those identities have experienced while different and sp- specific to each of them have a lot in common with the prejudice, the people who stutter experience, you know, at, at the basic level, it's prejudice is an experience of being seen as less than some, somebody else. Um, and I think the experiences that people who stutter have are often much more subtle Um than, say, an experience of racism, um, they still exist, and they still influence how we form our identities. And so it was, it was really just a process of drawing connections from what I was reading to my own experiences as a person who's stutters.
0: Hmm. So it sounds like you didn't go looking for this, but it, it kind of found you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's what I would say. I I was trying to learn some new research methodologies and uh, there were just a lot of similarities and connections to be made.
0: Hmm. Were you surprised when that happened?
1: I don't think I was surprised. I think I was excited because it seemed like a really interested path to go down. Um, As a, as a PhD student studying stuttering, I was I was constantly trying to draw connections back to stuttering. So you know, I was looking for stuttering under every rock. Um, so I don't think I don't think I was surprised. I think I was just happy to have found a c- connection.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. because I've heard this firsthand, you know, some people have a bit of a recoil response when they hear us talk about stuttering as a disability and, um, you know, that people who stutter might be treated with prejudice, et cetera. Um, what do you have to say about that?
1: I can relate to that. I I think a lot, because I think one of the ways I used to cope with my own stuttering was to try to minimize it as much as possible, and to live my life as if I didn't have a stutter. And I think I think that's a reasonable coping response, right? Is to um, try to minimize the impact stuttering has on your life. And to see yourself as not disabled, to say to yourself, I can do anything anybody else can do, stuttering is not a factor in my life, Um, I'm a whole person. And I think that when I say that stuttering is a disability, I don't really... I mean, how people who stutter view their stuttering. What I what I mean is how society in general views it. And regardless of whether you yourself view your stuttering as a disability, the research is very c- 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 clear that society views stuttering as different from fluent speech. And those differences come with negative connotations, right? That to have a stutter is to be disadvantaged in society. Um, And so I guess it doesn't really matter whether you yourself view it as a disability. What matters is how do the people you're talking to see it? And the large majority of people, um, see stuttering as, as a difference that is a disability. Um, I also think that prejudice works both ways. That a lot of people who stutter don't want to be affiliated with disabled people right? We have our own prejudices against the disabled community. And we've probably fought a lot of very hard personal battles to be taken seriously and to be seen as in- intelligent and confident and funny. And the last thing we want is to be grouped with disabled people. Um However, I think there is strength in solidarity and that a lot of people have told me that it's, it's, it's unreasonable to expect society to change, to accommodate people who stutter. And I think largely that's correct. If we were only people who stutter trying to change people's point of views, I think that'd be very, very difficult. Um, you know, we're, 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 only 1% of the population, but if we're just all people with disabilities trying to remove the stigma from being disabled, I think we have a much better chance of succeeding. seating, um, there's, you know, depending on how you categorize disability, there's anywhere from a third of the population to to the majority of the population could be considered disabled. Um, so I think that that's a fight that could be won. I think we have more to gain by seeing ourselves in solidarity with with anybody else with a with a bodily difference than insisting that that we're not disabled
0: Chris might you say that those of us who have resistance to that title might actually be prejudiced against ourselves
1: that's a fascinating preposition proposition. um possibly I mean there's a lot of research that uh, uh, Michael Boyle has done on self stigma and I mean, that's how, that's how prejudice works, right? Is that you internalize the discourses that are already circulating in society. Um, that wouldn't be unique to stuttering. You see that with uh, racial minorities, with different genders, with different sexualities, and um, just because you have an identity that is stigmatized doesn't mean you don't hold the same prejudices as everybody else.
0: Mm. Yeah. And do you know, and whose research it is that you're referencing that society does see stuttering as different from fluent speech?
1: There's a lot of studies that have looked at, um, You know, um, rating people, right? So you have different people speaking and you rate them on personal characteristics of likability, intelligence, attractiveness, stuff like that. Um, I I don't have the authors off the top of my head. Um, But after the episode, I can go get some and we can put some up on the... Dutter uh, Talk page.
0: Cool.: So back to the book, because I think what we touched upon is so many interesting topics, and we could probably talk for hours. I do want to um, get back to stammering Pride and Prejudice. So you are an editor and a contributor. So let's focus on the editor part for a minute. Again, how did it come together? I know you, Sam and Patrick, decided to make this happen, but can you give us the backstory?
1: So the backstory involves Sam and Patrick more than it does me. Um, I think – so to give, to give the, the listeners a introduction to the other two editors, uh, Patrick is a pediatrician who stutters in the UK. And Sam is a um, counselor – and speech therapist in the UK. And um, Patrick had attended a talk of uh, Sam's on the social model of disability. And it had a big impact on him. And he was thinking about the ideas a lot. And him and uh, the Sam got to talking later on. And um, Sam had just published a book on stuttering therapy called Stammering Therapy from the Inside, um, also uh, available from JNR Press. And Patrick was um, gently ribbing Sam that it it didn't have a lot on the social model. And uh, Sam and Patrick in that moment sort of challenged each other well- should we write a book about that? And so they uh, came up with the premise um, and they reached out to me to see if I wanted to be involved and I was happy to hop on board. Um, and so that was sort of how it all came about. I guess it came about because there was a vacuum. Um, there was people talking about these ideas, but nobody had really written... Anything in depth uh, about them yet?
0: And you guys decided on the title "Stammering Pride and Prejudice." Why the title?
1: So the title comes from a conference that was put on by Sam and uh, two of our um, con. Contributors in the book, Rachel Everard and uh, Carolyn Ch- uh, Chessman from City Lit, and they do therapy in the UK, um, they had put on a conference about the social model of disability and sort of tongue-in-cheek borrowed the Jane Austen novel title, uh, Pride and Prejudice. The idea being that um, they were going to be documenting how, not how stuttering is is a medical condition, but how it is treated by society, and that was going to be the the prejudice part, and then um, trying to find narratives that found value in stuttering, which was going to be the pride part. So um, we liked the the title as it was. Um, We had sort of, when we were talking with our editors, we had used that as a placeholder at the way beginning when when we were writing up our contract. Um, And then it just never really changed because it seemed – it seemed appropriate. We we were trying to document stories of um, uh, anxiety disabling us, but also stories of people finding value in their experience of stuttering.
0: Can you break down the structure of the book, Chris? And, And I may add, or the lack thereof, and I say that um, with like a smile on my face because reading it felt like I was almost like in an art work because sometimes, yeah. So, well, I'll let you answer that. What's the structure of the book?
1: So the structure of the book changed dramatically throughout the project. Or originally we had envisioned a very structured book with um, several different Sections, there is going to be a section on theory, like social model disability theory, a section on stories of prejudice, a section on stories of pride, a section on therapy applications. Um, but when we reached out to potential authors, um, we left it very open-ended about what they were going to write about. And we also got the idea to let artists contribute. So we have poems and pictures and photographs in there. And the things we started getting back while being very good did not fit into the structure we had envisioned. So we sort of, Forgot all of that and just had to be uh, open-ended. Um, and there, there's chapters that are theory-oriented. Um, I, I, I think especially uh, Josh Saint Pierre's chapter on different models of disability. There's chapters that are very much talking about applications to therapy. Um, or, Rachel Everard's and Carolyn Chessman's chapter is like that. Um, There's also chapters talking about people's experience of prejudice um, and chapters trying to find new meanings in their disabilities. Um, I think that's that's where my chapter fits in. But we also have poems and photographs of people stuttering. Those are some of my favorite parts of the book.
0: So, Chris, like uh, kind of what you're saying in terms of the structure, I was – I was surprised. And as someone who likes structure, first, it was a little bit like jarring. But as I got deeper into the book, I, I really appreciated how, just like stuttering, there's a lot of unexpected twists and turns. And it forms this beautiful piece of art at the end. And Thank you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I really, we we warned people in the introduction that this isn't a linear book. You don't have to read it from front to back. You can jump around as you wish. Yeah,
0: you absolutely can. So in the book, whether it's stated clearly or implied, you're you're strongly encouraged to start thinking and looking at stuttering through the social model of disability. What do you think the price is that we pay if we don't?
1: I think... One of, well, I guess, obviously, we continue to pathologize ourselves, right? We continue to see stuttering as a character trait that requires clinical I- intervention. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm a therapist myself. I'm not against therapy per se, um, but... As stuttering is treated, and when I say treated, I don't mean treated clinically. I mean considered by society currently. It's it's seen as a condition that should receive therapy. Um, In my own research with people who pass as fluent, one thing that I heard over and over was that people – Assume that if you stutter, you can go and get it fixed. And so there's really, in their eyes, no reason to be stuttering as as an adult because you should just go and get therapy and fix it. Um, as long as other people think that stuttering is something that should be fixed, then it's never going to have value in its own right. Right. That would be like, um, I think a perfect egg example is how, uh, homosexuality used to be pathologized. Um, it's hard to egg exist in a society that wants, that constantly wants to try to fix you. Um, I think obviously there, there's, there's, differences stuttering i think in and of itself can be very difficult for people especially if talking is very effortful but currently there really is isn't any space in the current discourses surrounding stuttering for it to just to be something that you're not worried about that you're just talking and this is how you talk normally i i think Trying to depathologize it opens it up for the possibility of just being a normal character trait. Um, I also think, from a clinical perspective, and this is this is one of my biggest interests in stuttering pride, is that stuttering is easier when you let yourself. St- Uh, Stutter. And that's not a a new idea, right? That's something Wendell Johnson was talking about back in the 40s. Um, But in my experience as a therapist, uh, getting people and children and teenagers to allow themselves to stutter is incredibly difficult. And one thing I like about this work is I'm, I'm trying to help people find reasons to stutter because if they have a reason to stutter, then stuttering will become easier. And I think if stuttering is easier, then they'll struggle less. They'll talk more and generally have a better quality of life.
0: Chris, you talk about stutter gain. Can you tell us what you think or say two, three things about stuttering that give us good reason to stutter, which then has that positive outcome that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. Um, So whenever I pose this question, um, how I like to word it is, what experiences do you have because you stutter that you wouldn't have if you were fluent? And, and, And the reason I try to ask it that Way is because I think it's I think it's easy for people to see stuttering as a difficult the thing that has caused them to grow as people, and that's great, but that's not unique to stuttering. Um, that can be said of any sort of hardship. Um, but if we're going to truly have reasons to stutter, we have to locate uh, special experiences that happen when we stutter and find value in them. And I think, and this is what in, in my chapter in the book is about. Um, something that I've located in my own stuttering is its ability to foster intimacy. Uh, when I when I'm speaking to somebody and I'm stuttering. Um, I I'm I'm temporarily vulnerable in front of them and they have to witness that and they have to be patient and they have to wait for me and that experience of seeing another person be vulnerable changes the whole dynamic of an interaction it changes something that might have just been a uh, normal, boring conversation to one where all of a sudden you're witnessing somebody on a deeper level. And I don't mean to imply that fluent people can't experience the vulnerability and intimacy because obviously they can, but they can't experience it by stuttering, right? That, that That's something unique to us. And it's something that happens every time we open up our mouth. Every time we open up our mouth to speak, um I think we have a much more intimate experience with the person we're talking to than a fluent person would. Now we don't always want that. Right? We we, we often just want to say what we're gonna say. Um, without any tr- trouble and maybe without any I- I- intimacy but the nature of vulnerability is that there's a risk right if 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 you're not truly at risk then you're not truly vulnerable and if you're not truly vulnerable then you're not capable of experiencing intimacy with another person. If, if you have all your protections up, then you're not, um, I think what makes the experience special is that you're relying on the kindness and the patience of another, right? If, if we didn't have to do that, then there wouldn't be any vulnerability there. so I I, I I think that's the big one for me, at least. I always encourage people to think about this for themselves, um, that what one person's stuttering gain might not be another's. Um, Emma Alpern has talked a lot about how she likes how her stuttering allows her to understand language better, how it sort of explodes a, a, a sentence or a conversation. Um, so there's sort of a, you know, how do, how do people interpret what you're saying when it's chock full of blocks and hesitations? Um, I think it's also possible to just appreciate the feeling of stuttering of our uh, tongues touching the back of our uh, teeth or our lips pressing together um, if we can learn to appreciate how our stuttering feels I think we'll probably uh, allow ourselves to stutter more and stutter uh, in, in new ways and um, yeah, I think people can come up with any countless examples. Mm-hmm.
0: So it sounds like the biggest one for you is that intimacy that it that it fosters, like you said before.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the it it forces me to let my guard down. Um, the way I've explained it in the past is that it's as if briefly all my clothes fall off. Um, And I'm hoping the person doesn't laugh at me. Um, And if they don't, then that's wonderful. And if they do, then, you know, oh, well, I guess he didn't like to see me naked.
0: Speaking of which, your last, your, the title of your chapter, which is the last chapter in the book is Stutter Naked. And um, I think the title is very provocative. And like you're saying, you know, stuttering does, it really just puts your heart on the line. And uh, you're in a way at the mercy of the listener. Can you take us into your chapter? Tell us what it's about and why you wrote it that way.
1: Yeah. um, So my chapter starts out with me thinking about conversations I've had with other people who stutter about uh, what might be good about stuttering. And like I was saying earlier, these conversations always end up talking about what is good about overcoming stuttering, right? All, all, All the things people have learned from the hardship of stuttering and so, I guess I, I express my frustration with that narrative, and, and, and I try to come up with a narrative that it makes stuttering good in and of it, it's, itself without having to o- overcome it. Um, and I, we start by looking at stuttering as something that could possibly be beautiful. And then I try to unpack why it's beautiful. What, 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 what could be beautiful about it? And I, I start by thinking about. Um, well, I, I guess I start with a with a poem called uh, "Pied Beauty" by Gerard Manley Hawkins Hopkins. And um, in the poem, he talks about um, imperfections on animals and in nature as being beautiful—the spots on a fish, and on a cow, and on the plants—and I can consider whether stuttering s- uh, could be one of these things that, in its in its interruption to what you would expect can that have a sort of aesthetic quality to it? Um, And then I explore, you know, what does it do in a conversation? What happens when I'm stuttering that wouldn't happen when I'm not stuttering? And uh, experience that happens to me over and over and over and over again that I think is pretty – evocative jumps e- immediately to my mind, which is the experience, and I'm sure a lot of people who stutter can relate to this, is the experience of walking down a hallway and trying to exchange a greeting with somebody walking in the other direction. And typically how that situation would go is two people would pass each other, somebody would say, hi, how are you doing? The other person would say, I'm doing fine. How about you? And the two people would pass without breaking their stride. No information would be exchanged, And it would be other, utterly uh, trite and useless conversation. But when I'm stuttering, the person has to stop what they're doing and wait for me. And that changes the nature of that interaction totally, right? It changes it from being a conversation where both people were intending on purpose to not communicate with the other to one where now the person has been forced to stop and actually listen to me. And if they do that, maybe we actually have a conversation. If they don't stop, once again, being vulnerable means that sometimes you get hurt, you know, oh well. Um, but the potential of fostering I- I- intimacy is almost pregnant in every moment of uh, it uttering.
0: Chris um I really enjoyed reading your chapter and hearing your thoughts um and reading about them really has broadened my understanding and perspective um I I know that for a lot of people and it's possible somebody listening to this conversation might be hearing what you're saying and and have like a very visceral response cuz that's tough you know like the journey of of self-acceptance um, it is is quite hard and long, and so what would you say to someone who is listening to you talk about stutter gain and things that can be beautiful about it, but inside they're hurting and and can't and don't see it at all the way you do?
1: I would hate to create. Another binary, right? So we already, what we're trying to do with this book is sort of erase the binary between uh, pathological and normal, right? To suggest that, uh, much like neurodiversity suggests, that perhaps this is just a continuum. Um, And... I would hate in doing that to create a binary between people who have an easier time accepting their stuttering and those who have a more difficult time. Um Stuttering is hard and there isn't any shame in having a difficult time with something that is hard. Um, I do think that, being able to see yourself as w- worthy of speaking, as w- worthy of being loved, as worthy of being heard, regardless of how your speech is. Um, while I think it's difficult, it's certainly a worthwhile thing to, to develop a sense of self worth. Um, so, I guess what I'm trying to say is I understand that uh, these things don't just happen. And, and uh, actually, a pet peeve of mine at stuttering conferences is that I think people often talk about the solution to stuttering is simply being an an attitude adjustment, right? That it, if you could just change your attitude stuttering wouldn't be a problem anymore um, and that's not all what I'm trying to suggest I think accepting stuttering is really really hard to work um, I think it takes years I think it requires exploring why you do what you do when you speak I think it ex- takes exploring um, a lot of baggage just developed over the years um i don't think it's simply a sh- shift in perspective um but what i hope the book th- it does is give people tools to help them begin to do that work right that this is a process it's not a destination and um i think the more tools that people have uh, available to them to make stuttering less negative, um, the hopefully the easier that work becomes.
0: Yeah. And and Chris, um, thanks for saying that. Like it is a process and I think it's okay to accept ourselves where we are. Something I always like to say about acceptance and stuttering, you know, Acceptance could be that you really don't like your stutter, <laughs> and right. right, and you love yourself anyway. It's kind of like you can hate it and like, fill fill in the blank. And so, just want to put it out there that acceptance um, also is is not black and white, and there's a lot of room for what that looks like for each person, and that usually shifts over time, or it might be different day by day.
1: Right, right. Can I? Can I add that um, I don't even think you have to accept uh, stuttering, right? It's okay to want to cure it. It's okay to want to get rid of and just talk fluently. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with viewing stuttering as a medical problem. Um, I think the value in looking at stuttering differently and trying to do this work is that currently there isn't a cure, right? Currently there's nothing we can do about stuttering if we stutter, but to continue to speak. And that being the case, um, I think it's helpful to, to try to develop meanings around the way we speak that are positive and that give us full fulfillment um but you don't you don't have to feel that way also
0: and i could vouch for this book chris because even though i've been on my own journey with stuttering and have learned to continue to evolve in the process this book definitely has taken me a step further to see stuttering through a lens of more self-love, more positivity, and really giving me that space to pause and reflect and see my setter differently. So I absolutely agree that this book does do that, which is why I'm so glad that it exists. And I, I do hope that for anyone that hasn't heard about it yet, it's called Stammering, Pride and Prejudice, Difference Not Defect, that you get a chance to actually go out and, and buy it. Chris, where can listeners purchase the book?
1: Listeners in the UK and um, in the world that isn't the United States can go to JNR Press, and the book is available from their website. Um, listeners in the United States can purchase the book a little bit cheaper from Stuttering Therapy Resources um, because they're uh, docking the book uh, in the USA. So uh, shipping costs will be less for them.
0: Awesome. And we'll put the links to this episode on Stutter Talks' website. Chris, any final thoughts you want to share before we log off, be it regarding the book? for National Suttering Awareness Week? No, I,
1: I think we covered a lot. I just want to express my gratitude for you for not only taking the time to read the book, but also taking the time to have this conversation. Um, and I just want to encourage everybody listening to uh, think, especially during this National Stuttering Awareness Week to think deeply about what happens when they're stuttering. What does it do to an interaction? And is there anything about what it does to the interaction that's positive, that's worthwhile? Um, I think it's a helpful experiment to, to do on ourselves.
0: Love it. Well, thank you, Chris. It's uh, always an in- Honor and a joy to speak with you. Um, happy National Stuttering Awareness Week to you and to everybody listening.
1: You too, Haya.